Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Sibel Oktay about her book, Governing Abroad, Coalition Politics and Foreign Policy in Europe, which was published by University of Michigan Press in 2022. Sibel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Definitely. Uh, my name is Sibel Oktay. I'm an associate professor of political science, uh, currently the director of the School of Politics and International Affairs at the University of Illinois at Springfield. And I'm also a non-resident senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Um, I'm also a 22-23 recipient of the Jefferson Science Fellowship from the U.S. Department of State. Um, my research focuses on the domestic politics of foreign policy and how leaders influence that relationship. Um, I focus on Europe, Turkey, Israel, and more recently, the United States. Well, I'm really glad you could join us today. Um, so how did you come to write this book, Governing Abroad? Yes. So um, I actually ran into an interview that was done with um, Harvard political scientist Joshua Kurtzer the other day. I was looking up for one of his essays online, and I stumbled upon this interview. And he said something, um, like he mentions a quote that goes something like, every dissertation is autobiographical, and in that our personal like lived experiences shape our interests and what we end up studying. And it was truly a light bulb moment for me to read that. Um, the dissertation um, and the book, um, that that was a dissertation in a previous life was truly autobiographical for me in that sense. Um, so I was born and raised in Turkey uh, during the 1990s, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And at that time, there were no single party governments, but only multi-party coalitions. And so the, the longest lasting government at the time would serve for like 10, 12 months before being dissolved and then, um, and then there would be new elections, new coalitions, and so on and so forth. In fact, that instability and chaos was precisely the reason why AKP, Tayyip Erdogan's party, won with historic vote share in 2002. 
So my political coming of age, if you will, um, coincided with that period of coalitions. And then you fast forward to graduate school. I became interested in Israeli politics, wrote a couple of term papers on that. And then um, that led me to becoming more interested in Israeli politics and, and, and sort of coalition politics in Israel as well. And I think it was my fourth year of graduate school when I attended this talk by Northwestern political scientist Hendrik Spreut, um, who was working on some um, a, a, a sort of a research project on territorial concessions. And I remember thinking how he didn't factor in the structure of the government in Israel at the time to sort of explain how concession was taking place. And so... I took this idea to my advisors and and then, you know, we, we basically picked it up and, and went from there. And so um, that my I guess my childhood versus uh, the, the graduate school experience kind of led me to to this book uh, from a sort of an autobiographical um, uh, standpoint. Um, but then obviously there are more significant, I guess, factual and scholarly reasons why this book um, became uh, 10 years of my life and, and research, right? Uh, so the, the factual and practical reasons are, actually, they're pretty straightforward. First of all, there are simply too many coalitions out there um, that are still waiting to be understood more clearly and, and, and more in depth. Uh, most democracies in the world are parliamentary systems, and most parliamentary systems produce coalition governments at the end of their electoral processes. And that's especially the case in Europe, which is the focus of the book, where nearly 90% of post-war governments are coalition governments. And so um, uh, clearly, uh, this is a powerful reason in and of itself to study them more closely. Our comparativist colleagues, those who study comparative politics, have been doing that for decades, looking at the, the formation of coalitions, how they how they come together, how they dissolve, and what kinds of public policies they produce. But the same amount of attention with same granularity has not been uh, dealt with in IR, in international relations and foreign policy research, and that's where the book comes in. Fantastic. So the central question in the book, as I understand it, is why some coalitions behave more assertively in the foreign policy domain. Um, and you argue that the answer to that question has to do with a number of factors. It has to do with the size of the coalition, how ideologically cohesive it is, and it also has to do with interactions between the coalition and the opposition in parliament. Can I ask you to go through your argument, kind of break it down for our listeners? Definitely. So the argument starts with the building block of any coalition, and that's a political party, right? Um, political parties have two things. One, they have seats in the parliament. And two, they have an ideological position that we capture either by looking at what they say in the election manifestos or by asking country experts on um, about where they think this party sits in the ideological landscape. Are they a right-wing party, left-wing party, and so on and so forth. And so all of this is pretty basic, starting with the, with the like I said, the building block of a coalition that's a political party. Um, but existing work in coalition foreign policy kind of sidestepped the political party component with that, that building block and focused on coalition as a monolithic unit that can be compared and contrasted with a single party government. You know, thinking along the lines of, OK, so here, here's a government where we have one party. 
versus there here's another government that has multiple parties and so how do they differ in terms of their foreign policy making and, and the kinds of behaviors that they enact and so that kind of debate, this sort of multi-party government versus single-party government debate has relied consistently on two approaches in the past. One is the veto players approach, which expects that coalitions uh, should have much more difficulty in acting in foreign affairs because there are simply too many parties involved in government. And then the flip side of that argument is a diffusion of responsibility or clarity of responsibility approach which expects that coalitions should have much easier time acting in foreign affairs because having many parties in government makes it easier for individual parties to avoid electoral blame for bad foreign policy. And so, in fact, I, I find some support for this in a, uh, in a subsequent paper that I, that I published in the European Journal of Political Research. So, so there's also some research on that. But what this debate didn't account for is the, again, the very building block of any coalition, and that is the political party. So how political parties come together, both in terms of their parliamentary seats and in terms of their ideological positions, not only defines what type of a coalition they will end up forming, but also how they will make foreign policy and act in an international arena. And so I start with this basic idea that we need to factor in, like you said, coalition type in terms of its size and ideological composition, and as a corollary, how they interact with the parliamentary opposition, precisely because how they are formed also dictates whether they are in the majority, in the minority in the parliament, whether they are able to fragment the opposition and get their way, and so on and so forth. And so when we unpack coalitions along these lines, we observe that coalitions can be in the minority in the government, in the in the parliament. So we would call them a minority coalition or they can be just big enough to enjoy majority in the parliament, but really be hostage to any governing party seat share. And we would call these sort of minimum winning coalitions. Right. They are they have just enough number of seats, but not too much. And then a third type of coalition can be oversized, meaning they have extra parties that can be spared, right? And we call this type of coalition a surplus majority coalition. So I call this the structural variation between coalitions. And then there's a situational um, layer on top of that that captures whether the parties in the government are ideologically closer to each other or farther apart. And, and that's, the, um, that's the ideological compactness of the government. And so this framework obviously relies heavily on existing work in comparative politics, which I alluded to earlier, um, specifically those on coalition theory and legislative politics. Um, so what I do is I use the typology that I've just described and show that the two competing approaches, the veto players theory and the declarative responsibility theory, um, generate far more varied expectations, not just two per se, but um, so many different expectations depending on um, what kind of a coalition we're dealing with, um, as well as whether the government is able to fragment the opposition. Um, and that that is especially important for minority governments who are um, operating at the mercy of the opposition, really. Great. So bef before we get to the uh, empirical chapters, um, I wanted to ask you what sort of research you did for this book. 
Right, so I relied on both quantitative and qualitative methods to test this argument. Um, so first, what I did was to look at some 17,000 foreign policy events that were engaged uh, by some 200 uh, European governments that served across 30 countries across Eastern and Western Europe between uh, 1994 and 2004. And so doing so gave me this kind of big picture. Here's how these variables relate to each other, kind of a component, right? The, the big sort of broad um, brushstrokes, if you will. Then, though, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper than that, right? Um, coalitions are not existing in vacuum. They exist in their broader domestic and international context. And they are led by prime ministers who have you know, varying degrees of sway over their cabinets for all sorts of reasons. And so I wanted to explore how those factors at the domestic level, at the international level, and also at the individual level might have shaped the international behavior of these governments. And so to do that, I relied on this method that we call structured focused comparative case studies. Um, and I wanted to uh, um, ask a, a, a series of standardized questions to each of my cases to, to gauge the relative explanatory powers of these alternative explanations, if you will. And so these include um, domestic public opinion, whether there were opportunities for governing parties to cooperate with each other in other arenas, so as to um, facilitate foreign policy making, which otherwise may not have been so um, easy to do. And, and that's something that we call log rolling in the literature. Um, whether there were prime ministers who were particularly influential in shaping the coalition's decision making process and so on and so forth. So I wanted to bring in both this sort of more historical, in-depth study of certain cases to show how um, these decisions are being made um, and also this more um, big picture here's how that relationship looks like on average kind of a component and the the evidence really fits together very well it's kind of this interlocking right uh, a sort of picture um, that makes your findings even more compelling so uh, let's begin with the statistical analysis that you mentioned can can you tell us about that so that chapter shows that coalitions are much more diverse in their foreign policy behavior when we factored in their size, their ideological cohesiveness, and how they um, engage with the parliamentary opposition. Uh, so for instance, oversized coalitions act as the clarity of responsibility argument would predict, meaning um, compared to single party governments, these surplus majority coalitions, it's otherwise known as oversized coalitions, engage in more intensive commitments that are more resource-oriented and therefore costly simply because they can, right? Electoral costs don't apply to them as much as they would apply to a single-party government. Um, however, when these coalitions become too loose ideologically so that like those situational constraints start to take over, then that advantage, um, that surplus uh, coalitions enjoy otherwise start to work against them because it now gets too difficult to agree on pretty much anything and therefore they decide to commit less and they water down their commitments. Um, 
minority coalitions on average commit less than single party governments. And that's kind of expected, right? So like I said previously, these governments are at the mercy of the legislature after all by not um, enjoying majority in the parliament. Um, but there's also a catch here that I hope will uh, will make a good contribution to the conversation about coalition foreign policy out there, which is if these minority coalitions bring in parties from both sides of the political spectrum, in other words, you know, if they if, if they establish a kind of grand minority coalition, right, um, then they are effectively fragmenting the opposition um, that allows them to navigate more freely in the international arena. And then there's some case evidence that I that I show for this in in the subsequent chapters. And then finally, I found that minimum winning coalitions were also able to commit in international politics, even when they were not necessarily enjoying ideological cohesiveness. Um, And that was a big takeaway uh, because the veto players theory weren't working exactly like people would expect. And so that was an added incentive for me to spend um, another chapter specifically sort of hashing out what lead these kinds of governments to engage in um, international commitments at the end of the day. Now, following the statistical analysis, you zoom in on Denmark, uh, where you document that country's relationship with NATO in the 1980s and the 1990s, and also its decision to participate in the 2003 war in Iraq. Um, so w- what are your findings there? Right. So this was really one of my favorite chapters to write. Um, like you said, this chapter focuses on the minority coalition context, which has not been dealt with um, as, I guess, as, as much as it we should have, uh, because about a quarter of all coalitions in post-Cold War Europe are minority coalitions. So like I said, they're simply too many of them, but then we, we don't have a lot of theoretical and empirical research on on this specific phenomenon. So I wanted to spend some time hashing out um, what how minority coalitions can engage in international commitments. And Denmark was a great lab for that since um, they are traditionally a, 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 a regime that produces minority coalitions as, as their government. And so um, I wanted to investigate both a confirming case uh, for this, for this, uh, for investigating minority coalitions and then a deviant case. And so to test these, I looked at the 1991 and 2003 decisions in Denmark to join the military operations in Iraq. Um, So the 1991 case was a confirming case uh, of my argument. So to briefly summarize that one, um, up until the 19. 1990s, uh, Denmark followed quite a bit of a NATO skeptic position, even though they were part of the alliance. Um, they pursued what we call, or what, what analysts and experts um, used to call a period of footnote policy, uh, where the government's NATO correspondence usually included a footnote that um, pointed out the opposition's dissent. Uh, and so this was obviously straining uh, Denmark's relations with the alliance and the U.S. in particular. And the was what was really interesting to find out was that the foreign minister at the time argued that the only way to put an end to these dissents and sort of mend the relationship with NATO and and became more of an actor in in the post Cold War um, uh, uh, um, 
uh, setting was to sort of break the alternative majority in the parliament. And so then the elections happened. um, And then the two leading returning parties on the right, the liberals and the conservatives, brought in the center-left social liberals, which effectively broke down that alternative majority in the parliament. And the social liberals were ultimately able to sell the government's proposal to the the parties that were adjacent to them on the left. And so um, through that kind of conversation, not only the footnote period ended, um, with that, with that government that really broke that alternative majority, um, but also uh, Denmark ultimately uh, supported the um, the NATO operation militarily by sending bat- sending battleships to the Persian Gulf, um, and so so that was a really fascinating way to show how a minority coalition was able to get what it wants uh, in foreign affairs by. Um, by dividing and conquering the opposition in the parliament. And so a contrasting example to this fragmented opposition thesis, that's what I call it in the book, uh, was Denmark's 2003 decision to participate in the the Iraq war. It was one of the first countries um, uh, that signed the, the famous letter of eight that introduced the the initial war coalition that was led by the United States. And so this was a deviant case since there was not a fragmented opposition, but the minority government was um, still ultimately able to commit Denmark to join the U.S. war coalition. And so I investigate how that happened in the absence of a fragmented opposition. Um, And the answer is the government was able to do that by log rolling, uh, meaning um, engaging in these sort of tit for tat, you know, you you scratch my back, I scratch yours kind of a deal with a far-right political party, uh, namely the Danish People's Party, the DPP. And they primarily was able to do that by appealing to the DPP's anti-immigrant platform. So they said, why don't you um, vote for this war bill along with us and we will pass the, the, the amendments that you, um, yeah, you hope uh, that we do as far as you know, making immigration and refugee laws a little bit more strict. And so um, uh, through that, um, they guaranteed their vote for the war bill in 2003. And so here we saw not my preferred argument, which is fragmented opposition, but this alternative explanation that I account for, uh, which was log rolling and... Um, and that's how the Danish uh, piece fits in with the whole framework of the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Fascinating. Um, now, you, you also look at the decision to join the 2003 Iraq war by another country, the Netherlands. So wh- why are the dynamics there different compared to Denmark? Right. So foreign policy really doesn't sleep. Right. So the, the I mean, the world is turning whether you have a government or not. And the Netherlands case shows us exactly what happens when foreign policy doesn't sleep, when you also have an, uh, an election at home and when you're trying to really scrambling to put together a government. 
um, as you know, your ally is waiting for you to give an official response about whether you're going to join the war or not. And so, um, so the, the the Netherlands case was really interesting because it really shows what happens when what I call when policy spills over, right? When foreign policy spills over to um, to uh, an electoral process to government formation process and and what happens really between these political parties um, who are uh, um, who are both governing at the same time but also um, trying to form the next uh, government and so on and so forth. So it's really it was really fascinating to untangle that domestic dynamic and and reflect on how that those dynamics shed light um how those dynamics really influence the foreign policy making process and so the dutch political parties uh, at the time and the christian democrats in particular um who led the outgoing government at the time uh this is uh this is around towards the end of 2002 and early 2003 they were um, they they worked to form the next government post election, uh, the the January twenty three uh, two thousand three election, and they were negotiating this government right. Um, and this the negotiations were taking place just as the United States was expecting them to to make a decision like uh, give a formal response about whether they want to join the war militarily or not, and so. At the time, the caretaker government said that they would support the war effort politically, but not militarily. And so that signaled some kind of restraint commitment um, that and, and that's how the chapter opens. And then the Dutch ultimately gradually increased their commitments to the war effort, um, much to the dismay of two political parties in particular, the Social Democrats and the the Democrats 66, that's their name. Um, And and these two parties were central to the coalition formation process at the time. Uh, The Social Democrats, um, the Labour Party in other words, um, were staunchly opposed to any type of Dutch involvement in the war. Um, But in the course of that government formation process and negotiations with the Christian Democrats, they ultimately came around and supported the military contribution to the war. Um, The the evidence shows that uh, they they did only because they wanted a seat in government. Um, So the Social Democrats, and that's the argument that I make make in the book, they could have used their veto power and said no, um, but they chose not to because that was there was something for them to gain at the end of that process, and that was office seats. Uh, now, the Social Democrats never formed the government because they couldn't reconcile their economic policy differences with the Christian Democrats, and so that government never uh, came into fruition. But the same exact scenario played out with the next political party that the Christian Democrats ultimately formed the government with, which was the Democrats D66. Specifically, um, that political party had to go along with the Christian Democrats' position and and Balkanenda's position, who was the the famous prime minister of the Netherlands at the time, and they okayed military support for the war because, again, they wanted a seat in the government. And so, like I say, both in the book um, and, and and I try to demonstrate empirically, these two parties could have easily used their veto power, but they chose not to um, because they wanted to log roll with the other party and, and get office seats and, and rule as government. And so that's how the Dutch was able to join the war effort in, in 2003. 
Great. Uh, so the book also examines Finland's decision uh, to join the European Union's Economic and Monetary Union in 1999. How does that piece sort of fit into your argument? Right. So the Finland chapter focuses on, uh, like you said, surplus majority coalitions, these big oversized governments that include more parties than necessary uh, to rule to achieve parliamentary majority. And therefore, the veto power doesn't exist for some of the parties, right? The Some of the parties whose vote is not necessary um, for um, for passing a bill in the in the parliament they they don't really have that veto power that we otherwise expect um, these these coalition partners to have and so the theory suggests that these coalitions will be able to commit more intensively abroad by taking advantage of responsibility diffusion meaning you know voters will not be able to identify who's to blame and so so they will come back and so the observable implication here was that if this responsibility diffusion is really at work then these parties should not lose votes or seats or a chance to be in the next government, even though they act against the will of their constituencies. And so I had to design a study around that to sort of show that relationship at work. And so to do that, I shifted gears away from security and defense, which were the the focus of the previous case study chapters, to economic policy or or foreign economic policy, I should say. And so doing so, I was able to, I hope, uh, preemptively address a couple of potential hurdles, right? One is issue saliency and second, uh, public opinion. And so if the test for my argument is to show the futility of public opinion, um, which then shapes these parties' decisions and and the the responsibility diffusion uh, mechanism at work, then perhaps a traditional foreign policy issue, which most people would consider second order, meaning not as important for public opinion to shape their support for political parties, um, then then that would be too easy and and perhaps unrealistic, right? So we needed to find an issue that was both a foreign policy facing issue, but also something that's highly salient for people on the street, right? And so... Um, that's when I decided to focus on this adoption of the euro um, because it was not only framed as a foreign policy issue by the government, um, it was also extremely salient for the public as the polls showed uh, during that period. And there was, on top of that, there was consistent and high levels of public opposition surrounding um, this proposal to uh, abandon the marka, that's the Finnish, that used to be the Finnish um, currency, and adopt the, the euro. So in that sense, it was really the perfect hard case um, or hard test, I should say, for me to investigate how the governing coalition ended up abandoning uh, the the national currency and adopting the euro. And so the Finnish case tells a story of how that came about, how this um, rainbow coalition, they call it, um, uh, came to adopt the euro in 1998. and, and then every single political party in it were re-elected 11 months later, and they formed the next government and continued their business as usual. Uh, what was really fascinating in this chapter uh, is that especially the two coalition parties who were opposed to the euro, um, the Left Alliance and the Greens, uh, ultimately did a U-turn. They, they really 180'd on their policy position. Uh, they, they were outspokenly against the euro until then, but then ultimately they voted alongside the other parties who were pro 
euro. And in 1999, when the elections took place, they went back to the government with actually increased vote share. So in the in the chapter, I show um, how these parties changed their position at the same time that they their constituencies were extremely opposed to um, uh, the euro, um, and they were still able to get back to the government. And so the argument there is that if the governing parties know this and anticipate being back, then they will choose to be loyal to their governing parties who will who they will continue working with going forward, as opposed to their constituencies, because the constituencies will reelect them anyway. And so um, I, I make this argument in the chapter also in relation to a couple of counterfactual cases uh, from from Denmark and Sweden at the time, which faced with similar uh, sort of forking paths, right? Do we adopt the euro? Do we not adopt the euro? And and that kind of um, uh, caselets, as some would say, uh, comparing the, the Finnish case with the Swedish and Danish cases uh, also shed light on how the responsibility diffusion process was really at work. Now, if we zoom out from these uh, specific cases and we think about the book as a whole, uh, what, what would you say are the policy implications of your argument? So hopefully there will be good lessons for policymakers, both in the United States and also for um, uh, politicians, uh, lawmakers who are uh, engaging in coalition politics in their home countries. And so for the U.S. policymakers at the most, I guess, basic and broadest level, the book says, pay attention to the domestic politics of our allies and partners, right? Um, their internal dynamics shape their foreign policy more than we think or more than we um, we anticipate. Um, there's a quote uh, from, I guess, Dick Cheney was during the run-up to the 2003 war, uh, where he, he gets mad at some aide or, or someone um, the, because they mentioned the German elections and um, Gerhard Schroeder, the Social Democratic Party leader, um, had requested from the United States at the time to hold off like any form of requests until the elections are over. And then Cheney goes off and says, you know, why should I care about Germany's elections? Well, you have to because the next coalition... Um, we'll have to navigate those policy differences inside them, and that's going to yield a result um, that the United States may uh, may like or may not like. And so, so really paying attention to what's happening uh, in the domestic politics of of these allies and partners are really important for the United States to navigate its international uh, landscape. And so, and so hopefully that is something that the um, the book will be able to communicate uh, through its chapters. And I think it also offers good lessons for policymakers in the European countries or in countries that are frequently ruled by coalition governments by demonstrating how there are various pathways to making commitments. Um, so in the book I spend, and especially in the last chapter, I spent some time thinking aloud really about how like bringing in niche parties as junior party um, junior partners to the coalition, uh, you know, these issue-specific parties, right, like the Greens or, um, you know, anti-immigrant parties or so on and so forth. And so how... 
um, those niche parties can can um, facilitate certain foreign policy uh, positions or foreign policy decisions through low rolling, um, or how minority coalitions, like I said, that's um, one in every four government in Europe is a minority coalition. So that's something that we should pay attention to, how they can act with a little more heft in international affairs if they divide and conquer the opposition ranks. Uh, so these are all the different ways in which coalitions can govern abroad. Thank you, Sibel. Now, obviously, we've only skimmed the surface, right, of, of, the, of what's in the book. And listeners will really need to read the book to sort of capture all of the detail that's in there. Um, but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important for listeners to know? So what I was thinking about as I was preparing for this, for this show, for this interview, was how current events are making this book really timely, um, and and so at the end of this month, uh, we are recording this in September uh, of 2022, uh, Italians will go uh, for another round of elections. Um, Israel is having, I forget, like half a dozen elections since uh, in, in the last two, three years. And so um, these government or these uh, regimes, they frequently uh, produce coalition governments. And so how they end up forming the next government will have a lot of impact on how they um how they make foreign policy. And so uh, for uh, for Middle Eastern uh, security and stability, what Israeli government looks like uh, following this round of elections is will be important. Um, for the war in Ukraine and Western resolve, what's happening in Italy will, will have some implications. And currently, um, you know, if you look at German foreign policy, it's um, it's having a, a very difficult uh, moment, right, with respect to the Ukraine war. Uh, the Germany is one of the largest exporters of, uh, I'm sorry, one of the largest importers of uh, of Russian gas, and um, and you know, like I, you can't help but think like winter's coming and. Uh, and we don't know if Germany will uh, continue to have this kind of um, energy dependency on Russia or maybe consider uh, going back to nuclear energy as an alternative source. Um, that has implications for the German coalition, which has Greens as a junior party. And, and the Green Party's uh, platform is extremely anti-nuclear. And so Olaf Scholz, the German prime minister will have to straddle this line between appeasing Russia uh, and, and, and the Greens uh, versus uh, aligning with the West and showing some strong resolve uh, in, the, in the next coming months. And so these are all the things that show how coalitions are extremely important for, um, uh, for foreign policy, for international affairs, even in these uh, in, in this moment where uh, we're, sh- we're seeing a lot of regional instability um, through Russian aggression. Thank you. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because it really hammers home sort of the contemporary and continuing relevance uh, of, of this book. Um, so my final question to you is, you know, this book is now out in the world. Um, so w- what are you working on now? 
Yeah, so I am continuing to stay in my lane, I guess, uh, which is the domestic politics of foreign policy. But for the last couple of years, my public facing work on U.S. relations with NATO allies and the war in Ukraine have begun shaping my research. It's, I guess, often it's the other way around, right? Like your research shapes your public facing work. But for me, it kind of worked backwards, which I'm which I'm totally happy and and. Uh, you know, content with. Um, so right now I'm working on a couple of projects that look at alliances and how the elites and the public think about them. And so questions like when alliances matter, um, what kinds of allies matter more, and so on and so forth. And so I have a couple of uh, survey experiments in the works. And so my plan is to spend the next few years focusing on the relationship between public opinion and foreign policy, especially in the context of alliances and alliance relationships. That that, that sounds like a a great project. Um, so, Sibel, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. The book is Sibel Oktai's Governing Abroad, Coalition Politics and Foreign Policy in Europe, published by University of Michigan Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.